1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. While you're turning there, I want you to imagine that you are writing a letter to a troubled church, a, a divided church. Church that is dividing over its favorite leaders. Church that has a division over some Christians taking each other to civil court in order to make financial gain. A church divided over a case of conscience. Church dividing at the Lord's Supper along socioeconomic lines. And a church that's divided over spiritual gifts and their use in the church. Now, imagine that you're the one writing a letter to such a congregation and ask yourself, what would you say? What counsel would you offer to them to try to help them? We have made it up to chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, and we've seen that Paul has had a number of things to say up to this point. But here, uh, at the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13 is what Paul wants to say now to this divided congregation. He wants to tell them about a more excellent way. And that more excellent way is the way of love. Not a warm, fuzzy kind of feeling love, not love in the abstract, but agape love. Uh, self-giving, other-serving love that is expressed in action. And so what we're looking at here is Paul's counsel to a church divided over leaders, theology, uh, matters of conscience, social class, and spiritual gifts. And he wants to show a church full of self-centered Christians that there is a better way. There's a better way. This is his counsel to loveless people in the church who think that their way of thinking, their way of speaking, their way of living, their way of service in the church is better than everyone else's. And in verses 1 through 3, where we're going to camp out today, we see why love matters so much. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. So let's turn our attention to, to read God's word together. But first, let's pray and, and ask for his help. Lord, uh, no doubt we all come this morning with concerns in our minds or things going on in our lives that might preoccupy us or pull us away. But we're here and we want to hear what you have to say to us. So give us uh, attentive ears and open hearts. Come, uh, Holy Spirit, and feed us with your word and cause us to digest it until it becomes a part of us. Show us uh, the love of the Father revealed in Christ. Show us our very great need and how Christ is the answer to all of our needs and sanctify us so that more and more we come to look like our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Well, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we are going to reflect on this famous passage here in 1 Corinthians 13 and think together about Christian love. I think this is important for a number of reasons, but it's important most of all because I think it's safe to say that all of us need more of the love of Jesus in our lives. I know that's certainly true for me. I need more of the love of Jesus in my life for my wife and kids. I need more of the love of Jesus in my life for you, brothers and sisters I'm called to love and serve. I need more of the love of Jesus in my life for my neighbors who so desperately need to hear the, the gospel of God's love. Really, in every relationship in my life, I need more of the love of Christ. What about you? It's probably the same. And do you know, do you know the, the shape and the character of Christ's love for you? And do you know that because you are loved in this way, that you can learn and begin to love as you are already loved in Christ Jesus? This is what we are after in 1 Corinthians 13, delighting in the love of our Savior and learning to love the way Jesus loves us. Before we think about verses 1 through 3 this morning, though, I want to mention a mistake that we want to avoid that we could make when we read 1 Corinthians 13. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, it is well known because it's often read at, at wedding ceremonies, and, and that's fine, but just to make sure we understand, this is not about marriage, first and foremost. Paul is actually talking about the kind of love that all Christians are to have for one another. This is this is about love in the church of Jesus Christ. But because that's usually the context where we hear 1 Corinthians 13 read in, in, in weddings, we tend to read these verses as, a, as an encouraging, feel-good passage full of nice, warm thoughts about love. But at one level, I think that this passage ought to terrify us. I think it ought to terrify us because... It sets a standard for love that I know I do not meet. That's really easy to prove, actually, from this passage. If you start reading from verse 4 and just insert your name every time you see the word love, give that a try for a second. Jared is patient and kind, and right out of the gate, I've failed the love test. I can tell you, when I was impatient and unkind in this last week, but keep going. Jared does not envy or boast. He's not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing. 
but rejoices with the truth. Jared bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jared never fails. Now, if you did that for yourself, then you're probably feeling a lot like me, not very loving at all. But the problem is that love is to be an essential mark of the Christian church. You think about it and read through the teaching of our Lord Jesus and his apostles in the New Testament. One of the things you're compelled to notice is that love is more insisted upon than any other virtue in the Christian life. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that we are his disciples, by the love that we have for one another. And Paul insists upon its absolute necessity here. He's saying love is so essential. No gift that you have, no service that you render matters at all without love. And so as we look at verses 1 through 3 this morning, we just have one big idea that we're going to try to take in and Lord willing by the ministry of the Holy Spirit have etched upon our hearts. And that idea is one I've already said. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. Some of the Corinthians thought their spiritual gifts made them really special. And they were, you remember from last time, some of them were looking down on others. And here Paul takes them to task. And he uses a little bit of hyperbole along the way to, to show them just how far off track they've gone. And so he starts by listing spiritual gifts that actually Paul himself had. He spoke in tongues in chapter 14, verse 18. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So Paul spoke in tongues. He he had the gift of prophecy. He was given insight into mysteries. He was the recipient of inspired knowledge. He was an apostle after all. He had extraordinary faith. Here it's not talking about the kind of faith that every true believer has, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a kind of faith that is able to trust God through the most difficult circumstances. Paul had that kind of gift that sustained him through the trials of his apostolic ministry. And he, he had left everything behind and counted it as rubbish for the sake of Christ and was willing to lay down his life for the cause. Indeed, one day he would. And yet he says, suppose I had all of this to the fullest degree imaginable. Suppose, he says, I spoke not only in the tongues of men, which, by the way, is what tongues is in the Bible. It is, uh, that's what the New Testament is talking about. It is human languages unlearned by the speaker. But he says, suppose I had the gift not only of human languages, but, but suppose I spoke also in the tongue of angels. Now, he's not saying that anyone can actually speak in the tongues of angels, or that's what tongues is. He's saying... Even if we were to go to, I was to go to that extreme and had a gift of such magnitude that I could speak in angelic tongues. Suppose I had the gift of prophecy to such an extent that I could fathom all mysteries and knowledge. Suppose I 
surrender not only everything in my life, but my life itself. And I give myself as a martyr for the cause of the gospel. Suppose I do all of this. And he says, if it is not animated and motivated and driven by love for others, what use is it in the end? The spirit-given ability to speak in human languages and even the hypothetical ability to speak in angelic tongues would be as worthless and empty, verse 1, as a noisy gong. Now, there are at least two takes on what Paul means here by the imagery of a noisy gong. And I'm, I'm not quite sure which one it is, so I'm just going to share both of them with you today. Some think it refers to uh, hollow bronze jars that were used to resonate sound in ancient theaters. And Corinth was actually uh, known for its production of brass. So some people think this is the most likely thing Paul is alluding to. These, these brass jars, in other words, they were used to amplify sound in, in the theater. So the point then would be that without love, our words are just sounds resounding from a lifeless vessel. But others think Paul was actually referring to gongs used to worship pagan deities in, in temples throughout Corinth. If that's the case, then Paul is suggesting that without Christian love, our worship and our exercise of gifts is little different in the end from pagan worship. And Paul then adds symbols to the word picture. You know, symbols uh, can be used to make music when they're used rightly, but you also probably know what it sounds like if somebody takes hold of two symbols and starts banging them together. It's jarring and deafening. You see, Paul is saying no matter how gifted we are, this is what we become without love. No one, no one hears the gospel from the life of a loveless Christian. It's just silenced by the deafening sound of ksh, ksh, ksh. That's what Paul is saying here. It's the imagery. Think of, think of every loveless word spoken by Christians. Every loveless deed. Every loveless in modern terms, we might say every loveless blog posted, every loveless tweet sent out. What does it amount to? Paul is saying a cacophony of noise deafening people from hearing what they really need to hear from the Christian community. He goes on and says, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have the gift of faith so as to move mountains, and I have not love, please Notice what Paul says, I am nothing. Now the Corinthians thought they were really something because of their spiritual giftedness. But he's saying even if you were to express and make use of these extraordinary gifts in the most impressive way imaginable, if it's not rooted in love, however important you think yourself to be, you are nothing. In verse 3, Paul, Paul shifts from gifts to good works. We mentioned them already, but let's come back to them. Suppose I give everything up for Jesus. 
Right? Suppose I do that with my possessions, my earthly belongings, and I give it all away to the poor. Or say, I go beyond that, and I, and I give my life up to be burned as a martyr. These are two of the greatest possible ways anyone could ever serve the Lord. Yet what is gained in giving away everything or in giving up your life in the end if it's done without love? Paul says, nothing. Zilch. Nada. And Paul mentions these extraordinary gifts. You understand the argument that he's making. He mentions these extraordinary gifts and works to prove his point, which really applies to all spiritual gifts and all Christian service. No matter our giftedness and what we do in service for God, Paul is saying it means nothing without love. Friends, that's a reality check, isn't it? When you slow down and you think about what Paul is saying. Here's the sobering reality. It is possible to use our gifts for ministry without love for anyone except ourselves. Our love can be so distorted that it's possible for us to do something that looks like it is for someone else. When in fact, it's only for us to build ourselves up, to feed our own ego, to develop our reputation in the community. This is something we all need to face up to. The mistake of thinking that because of our giftedness, our status, our ministry, our service, because of something we do, that what we do matters and counts for something. Paul is saying in these opening three verses of chapter 13, that attitude, that, that way of thinking, it really stinks. It really stinks. In fact, it's as helpful as pagans clanging some brass together in worship to idols. If love does not shape your life and service, Paul is saying, you are nothing and you gain nothing. See, love matters. Love matters because without it, nothing else does. Now, as we think about that, that basic truth here, I, I, at least if you're thinking like me, you've got to wonder what hope we have. <laughs> all right, after all, isn't it true that what we have done, which admittedly is very little, was often done with a lot less love than we should have done it? But there's hope. Here's what I want us to see. There's hope for the loveless in the gospel of our Jesus Christ. And whenever we talk about Christian love, we have to turn and consider our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Paul talks about the necessity of love here in 1 Corinthians 13, he immediately goes on to talk about the character of love, which, as we'll see, I hope, in weeks to come, is really a description of Jesus Christ. And so in the weeks to come, we'll consider the, the shape and character of love and we'll turn to the Gospels to see Jesus' love on display. I think we need to do it this way because we are never going to learn how to love by simply trying to work it up in ourselves, but only by having more of the love of Christ poured into our lives. 
And so this morning, I want us to turn to familiar passage. You could go to Mark 10 if you want to consider the, the story of the rich young ruler. But I want us to consider this story perhaps from uh, an angle that you haven't considered it from before. Because I think we could also speak about this man as the man who thought he knew how to love. Remember he approached Jesus with an interest in eternal life and assumed from the start that there was something he needed to do in order to gain it. So he asked Jesus the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question, but there's very likely a faulty assumption built into his question, isn't there? He assumes that salvation is secured by something he does, that it's a matter of doing rather than believing. And I think that's, I think that's why Jesus goes on to answer him in the way that he does. The assumption is all wrong, though, because none of us is good enough to earn eternal life by anything we do as sons and daughters of Adam. We've all done too many of the wrong things and not enough of the right things, and even the right things we've done, we've often done with the wrong motive. And so Jesus tells the man, no one is good but God alone. No one is good, not the young man, not you, not me. No one is good but God alone in and of himself. And to prove this, Jesus rehearses the standard of God's righteousness. He says, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's, he's reciting the, what we call the second ha uh, table of the law of the Ten Commandments, which are really a description of how we are to love our neighbor. A description, a summary of the love that God demands. So you can take every command that Jesus cites there and sum it up as love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, that's what Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew, isn't it? When he says that the first great commandment is to love God and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so rather than directly dealing with this man's faulty assumption, Jesus Jesus goes with it and, and tells the man, okay, you're going to go that way. Here's what's required. And after listing the commandments, he responds basically saying, that's it? Great. Okay, I, I've got this. Honored my father and mother. Uh, I've never slept with another man's wife. I've never stolen anyone else's stuff. He said, I've kept these commandments from my youth. And do you see what he's really saying? If these commandments describe the love that God requires, then he was claiming that he has loved others enough to inherit eternal life. Now think about that. Would any of us dare claim that? Would any of us stand before God and say, as this man was doing, I've been loving people all my life. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't come out and say it like that, but truth be told, a lot of us probably think that we do a pretty good job of loving other people. That's what this man thought. 
But Jesus wanted to show him that he was not as loving as he thought he was. And so Jesus gave him a simple test. He said to him, conceding for a moment that the man really did keep God's commandments, he said, go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. See what's going on there? It was a test of the man's love. His love for his neighbor, but more fundamentally, love for God. Would he, would he relinquish all of his resources and trust and follow Jesus? In that moment, sadly, it was made clear that what he really loved was himself and his possessions and what his riches could buy him. And so the man we read, he, he went away sorrowful, disheartened because of what Jesus said, because he had great possessions. You see, his loveless heart was exposed. He thought he knew how to love, but it turned out that he just loved himself and his riches. He was too self-centered to love Jesus and to love others. Now, we just flew through that story, but I wanted to look at it for a couple of minutes for, for two reasons, two main reasons. One is, as we enter into this study of love in 1 Corinthians, to face up to the fact that we do not love much more than this man did. We, we, always, we always want to place limits on our love, and we often have a list of excuses for why. We always, we, we're ready to give, but perhaps only when we have a lot left over for ourselves. Uh, we're ready to, to care for others as long as it isn't too inconvenient. We're ready to serve so long as it doesn't get in the way of the things that we want to do. We are willing to love provided we get something in return. We need to admit that we do not love the way that Jesus loves. I think Paul was willing to admit this. Did you notice how in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, how he spoke in the first person singular. Rather than saying to the Corinthians, if you speak in the tongues of men and of angels without love, it's all nothing. He says, no, if I do these things without love, I am nothing. He's not simply rebuking the Corinthians. He's including himself and he's being honest about the lessons he has learned about his own loveless heart. But the other reason I, I wanted to look at this story is, is not just to face up to how loveless we can be, but also to see how loving Jesus really is. Now, the rich young man, he, he boasted that he had kept all of God's laws for loving his neighbor. And Mark tells us that when this man said this, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? Because isn't it the case that some of the hardest people to love are the self-righteous who think they have their spiritual act together? This guy was a know-it-all. He had such a high opinion of himself that he refused to confess his sin. Instead, he just walked away sorrowful. But Jesus loved him, Mark says. In fact, it was because Jesus loved him 
that he gave him that generosity test for love. He wanted him to see that he was not the lover that he thought he was and that he needed the love of Jesus in his life if he was ever going to inherit eternal life. I think this remarkable detail in the story tells us about the love that Jesus has for us. Again, we aren't any more lovable than the rich young ruler who who thought he knew how to love. But Jesus looks at us with a heart of love and he lovingly helps us see that we are not the lovers and the law keepers we fancy ourselves to be. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He, as we we confessed earlier, he, he lived and died for loveless sinners so that we could be forgiven and made right with the God of love and the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son so that we can start to love the way that we have been loved. So dear friends, the message this morning, it it challenges us to the core, but I also think it offers us hope. We are nothing without love. That's the message of 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. But Jesus does nothing without love. That's the message of Mark 10 and really the whole Bible. It was love that brought Jesus down from heaven to Bethlehem. Love that led him to perform miracles and preach the gospel. Love that led him to Calvary's cross to lay down his life. And love that exalted him to glory. Jesus is the love of God revealed to us. Earlier I asked you to put your name in the place of love in Paul's description in verse 4 and following. The character of love. But if you do that with the name of Jesus, it reads very differently, doesn't it? See, if, if 1 Corinthians is a, a 13 is a portrait of agape love, then this really is a description of Jesus Christ, isn't it? I don't think this is just an imaginative way of reading 1 Corinthians 13. I think it's actually how we are meant to read Paul's description of love. Notice that dramatic shift from verses 1 and 3 where Paul's speaking in the first person singular. And then verses 4 through 8 where now love is personified. And ask yourself the question, who is it that personifies this kind of love? Who is it? that embodies perfectly this kind of agape love. See, Jesus is the one who embodies this love. But today, as we get into 1 Corinthians 13, we've got to to come to terms with the fact that Jesus is everything we are not. But dear friends, that realization should not crush us In fact, it can liberate us because the love of Jesus is so great that he loves even us. And so, because he loves us, he has promised to save us, forgiving us for our lovelessness, our loveless hearts toward God and our loveless hearts toward our neighbor but also part of the salvation that Jesus brings us involves changing us, doesn't it? 
And Jesus is intent on conforming us to his image by the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we begin to love one another as we have been loved. And so we are nothing without love, but when we know Jesus, who does nothing without love, he enables us to love others the way that he loves us. And so as we reflect on love in the coming weeks, this is, this is my prayer for us as a church and for each of us as, as individuals that we would come to know more of the love of Christ in our lives. And as we come to know more of the love of Christ, that we would begin more and more to love one another the way that Jesus Christ loves us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess our lovelessness to you. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made the love of God manifest and you loved us to the very end by dying on the cross for our sins. We, we thank you that we have been reconciled by your blood and are bound to the Heavenly Father in a bond of love. We pray that you would continue to work in us by the Holy Spirit so that we would love one another in a way that reflects how we are loved in the gospel. We pray all of these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.